One of my friends who has helped me greatly in the, in the beginning, even provoked me to, to consider preaching Ecclesiastes, said when he came to this point, it was like he wished there were 12 more chapters. They could just go on and on. Ecclesiastes has been such a tremendous help to, to, my, to my own soul. So I am grieving a little bit that there's only two more sermons here, but the beauty of that is we have an entire Bible and all of it is God's, God's Word. And we've come to this, this final pause before the, the conclusion uh, in, in this book this morning. I mean, you know, we've talked about this, the book of Ecclesiastes has four parts. It has an introduction, that's chapter 1, which gives us the theme or the motto of the book, Vanity of Vanities, All is Vanity. And then in chapter 1, after Solomon tells us that's, that's what he's going to try to prove, he gives us, a, he gives us an executive summary, he tells us what he's going to tell us. And then in, in chapter 2 through chapter 6, he starts his first sermon. So there's an introduction. There are two sermons in Ecclesiastes. The first one, chapter 1 through 6. The second in chapter 7 through 11. And, and then there's a conclusion. It's chapter 12. And and that's where we're, we're at this morning. Very similar to what you would think of when you listen to a sermon. There's an introduction, and then there's a, a laying out of the case, and then, and then you, you have a, a call for a verdict. Well, right before Solomon the preacher calls for a final verdict, he, he gives us some insightful thoughts about, about his writing, about the, the book. Uh, in literature, it's called the epilogue. And just like Solomon gave us an on-ramp in, in chapter 1 to Vanity's Interstate, he's, he now brings Wisdom's car onto the off-ramp and before we pull into our final destination. So an on-ramp, he gets us up to speed. We, uh, one sermon, we go 70 miles an hour careening down the, the, the uh, life under the sun, and then you pull into the rest area, then the second sermon, and now he's pulling onto the onto the off-ramp before we get to, the, to our destination, which is in verses 13 and 14. An epilogue is a final or concluding statement before, before the book ends. And, and Solomon has a final word, and it's about the purpose of the, of the book. You might think of this, <laughs> these verses, verses 9 through 12, like the announcement that the pilot gives when he tells you that you're starting your descent. You've been on the airplane, right? I mean, you're engrossed in the in-flight movie, and you have the headphones on, and all of a sudden the pilot comes on, and he just kind of you know, startles you because it's always way too loud. Well, that's what Solomon does here. You hear him on the intercom. You sense as he's talking, the airspeed begins to slow, and, and he speaks. As he speaks, the, the pressure begins to change. You feel the flaps come out, and, and the landing gear d- descend. If you read these, these verses, if you listen to what, what Jesse read for us, really the bridge verse in verse 8, but we read 9 through 12, you might think, you might be tempted to think, I mean, there's not, not really much there, and, and you might be tempted to go back watching your in-flight movie. But you would be very unwise if you, if you did that. 
I mean, if you want to use our other analogy about the interstate, you would be like someone who, who doesn't pay attention to the, to the speed limit change from the highway to the off-ramp, and then you're not going to be able to stop at the end. I mean, there's a stop sign that, that's coming, and you're just going to careening right on through that and miss the destination. The pace of these verses are, uh, are slower to allow you to consider what Solomon says, and it's to prepare you for the conclusion. It's a reflective moment book summary where you, you get a minute to consider the person who wrote it and then the process of, of, of writing. I mean, Solomon just got done exhorting us to, to make God the focus of, of our life early so that you'll be able to enjoy it fully and rightly. And so, so you should do that before you grow old and, and then you only have a wilted bouquet to offer the Lord. And he said, let, let the joys of this earth be God's pleasures and and not, and not porch pirates that, that steal its, its real gifts. In order to do that, in order to truly enjoy things, whatever you enjoy, whatever pleasures that you engage in, they must be able to withstand the judge's scrutiny. Because this life, this body, the pleasures of this earth will end, and you'll return to God, and you'll stand before Him. So keep that in mind whenever you live life under the sun. Whatever you enjoy, realize that that in detail, even down to the very motive behind why you did it, you'll see again. You'll see whenever you stand before, before the Lord. Solomon says we're not our own masters. We have a creator. We're not even our own slaves. We, we're the creators and we'll return to the dust and our spirits will return to Him. And, and then he ends... In verse 8, look at you what at verse 8. He says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. You've heard that before, haven't you? Yeah. Solomon gave the theme back in chapter 1 by telling us this is the problem of our experience outside of the garden. It wasn't that way inside the garden, but after the fall outside the garden, this is our experience. He says, uh, futility and frustration, all is is futile. And he's proved that over and over and over in the book. My friend Joel, James, says, it feels like Solomon puts you in a casket in every chapter, nails down the lid, and won't let you out until you give up every last hope in yourself and, this, in the, and then this life. And that's exactly where he left us the last time, wasn't he? He left us in the grave. Man's body returns to the dust and his spirit returns to, to the one who gave it in, in verse 7 of chapter 12. And then he ends in these final verses in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, all is, is vanity. Solomon is put us in the coffin and he's, he's going to take the lid off. But he gives us this, this last feel of frustration before the ultimate answer. And the epilogue is there to give you the purpose, to help you see that. Why has he been doing this the entire book? I mean, is Solomon's point, as some liberal scholars say, life is pointless and then you die? I mean, is that the point of Ecclesiastes? So I want to give you a little bit of wisdom to help you so it won't be as bad. It'll still be bad, but I'll help take a little bit of the edge off of it. Again, that's what some liberal commentators think. I mean, is that the purpose of a wisdom book in the Bible? You're relegated to a horrible life, but if you listen to Solomon, it may not be as horrible as it would be otherwise. But it's still going to be pointless and meaningless. Without verses 13 and 14, 
you may be tempted to think that. That's not Solomon's purpose at all. Right here, he shows us it's not. It's Solomon shows us in these passages that he has had a goal the entire time. He's been killing us and resurrecting us in every chapter in order to prepare us for these two final verses. He's not being fatalistic or, or trying to minimize your pain. These last two verses give us the conclusion of, of, all, of all of life. In these few verses, he gives us insight into his writing strategy. He provides us a clear perspective on, on what seems like a confusing book. He reveals the purpose of Ecclesiastes in these, in these verses. Ecclesiastes is a book written by Solomon or, or Koaleth, the preacher, who's imparting wisdom to us. He tells us here it's carefully researched and, and crafted for the purpose of teaching. And he's called by God to do this. And he also reveals his original source, which is the Creator Himself. I mean, Solomon has known his destination all along. You and I, you've been looking out the window thinking, we're lost. Where is Solomon going? And Solomon reveals in this verse why he took every single turn. He tells us the method to his madness that, that leads to his message in verses 13 and 14. And so he repeats the motto here in verse 8 to remind us of his message, everything under the sun is vanity. And then he gives you a peek into his study in verses 9 and 10. He shares his method of writing in verses 11 and 12, issues a warning there in that as well. And then he gives the, he ends with the, the final message of the whole book in verses 13 and 14. Or as one put it, the motto, the man, his methods, and then the message or what we will say is three reasons that you should listen to the message of Ecclesiastes. That's what Solomon reveals to us here. Solomon reveals three reasons that you should listen to the message of Ecclesiastes. You should do that because it was written by a wise preacher in verses 9 and 10. It was written with a pastoral message, beginning in verse 11, and then it was written from an inspired source in verses, into verse 11 and, and, and verse 12. A wise preacher, a pastoral method, and an inspired source. Let's, let's look at the first reason that he gives us here. The first reason you should listen to the message of this book is because it was written by, by a man who was wise, who was called to give us this book. Again, verse 8, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. And then in verse 9, he's going to tell us this preacher was, was a wise man. So after he completes this masterful poem that brings us down to the grave, Solomon ends by reminding us of the book's theme. And again, that's exactly where he began back in, in verse 1. It's like the campaign slogan of Ecclesiastes. You're going to be sick of campaigns by the time November comes around if you're not already. But if Ecclesiastes had a campaign slogan, this is what it would be. Vanity of vanities, or you can't make the world great again. That's what Solomon would say. And he proves that for 11 chapters. There are things that are crooked, that can't be made straight. There's injustice, there's oppression, there's death, there's sickness, there's all of, of these things. But he also tells us that while you can't make this world better, God can. 
And now, when he ends the book, he's confirming that nothing's changed. After the entire book, nothing has changed. Life is vanity and vexation without God. He proves that, and now death is vanity and vexation without God. It's the same place that, that, he, that he began with. It's called an inclusio. You may think like bookends, and you hear the word in, to include. Everything in between is, in, is included under this, under this theme. The theme reigns over everything in between. Verse 1 and chapter 12, verse, verse 8. Life, because of the fall, begins in vanity or futility. It continues in frustration no matter your search. And death comes because of the, the same sin. And it ends in vanity. If you don't know God. Walt Kaiser said, what a, a waste to have lived without having enjoyed or known what life is all about. It is a waste. You know what's worse than the curse? What's worse than living in a world with a fall all around us is dying without ever knowing the answer. I mean, that's the tragedy of tragedies. And with that statement, Solomon concludes the sermon of, of his book. And now he's ready to summarize everything and draw a final conclusion. Look at you at verse 9. Solomon begins here summarizing and drawing a conclusion. And he describes his aim for the book and his activities in writing the book. Verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. Notice Solomon says here, in addition, or moreover, or beyond this, beyond vanity of vanities, beyond the bookend. We're outside of that now. Here's the aim for the book. And here's my activities in, in writing it. And he starts with his aim. His aim is wisdom. He calls himself a wise man, meaning a wisdom writer. Solomon is not being conceited like, I am a wise man or I am a good preacher. He, he's, he's not being conceited. He's simply identifying his role in writing Ecclesiastes as a teacher of Israel. There are, in the Old Testament, there are three offices or individuals, it's probably a better way of saying it, that God used to, to teach His people. You might like think in the New Testament, in, in the book of Ephesians, where it says God gave some apostles and prophets and some evangelists, missionary evangelists, some pastors and, and teachers. Well, in the Old Testament, there were three primary individuals that God raised up to teach His people truth. There, there was the prophet, there was the priest, and then there was the wise man. The priest, probably very familiar with that, he applied the covenants and helped God's people understand His law. Priests were teachers of God's law. They didn't just sling blood and do rituals. They, they taught God's law. They were the teachers of the law. They stood between Israel and God and ministered the covenant. An obvious example of a priest would be Aaron. The prophets were another group. They, they, were, they were like Israel's conscience. They called God's people back whenever, whenever they strayed, or they called God's people to, to follow Him in, in some way. They reminded God's people of His promises and His judgments. And, and when I think of a prophet, I think of, of Elijah. How long will you halt between two positions? If Baal be God, then serve him. But if the Lord be God, then, then serve him. Israel's conscience calling them back, calling them to, to believe. 
Well, the wisdom writers were, were the ones who, who applied all of those things to general living. They helped God's people understand the reason behind it. They taught as well, and they had a specific purpose. And Solomon says he falls into that category. He, he's a wise man. He's a wisdom writer. You might think of it this way. The entire Bible is a complete book with one divine author to reveal one message, the, the redemption that, that's possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's made up of parts in order to direct God's medicine into the right area. So, I mean, if the prophets are like the, like the AED machine that shocks a dead heart back, back to life, the wisdom literature is like a cortisone shot for your, for your achy joints. They're like the orthopedists that do that. They, they remove, those shots remove inflammation and, from the curse, and they lubricate the friction that's, that's going on. They help make sense of what's going on in life and, and walking forward. Biblical wisdom is designed to keep our spiritual knees, or help our spiritual knees to work well, so we can walk without pain in a fallen world. And Ecclesiastes fits within that category. It's a wisdom book to provide guidance as we live in a Genesis 3, 3 world. I mean, we've been over this, but just to remind you, Proverbs is a wisdom book. There are four. You've heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, where there, there are four wisdom books as, as well. Proverbs teaches us wise living in general areas of life. Job is a wisdom book. It comes along and shows us what to do when life doesn't fit in a nice, neat little proverb. Song of Solomon teaches us how to live wisely in marriage with another sinner. And then Ecclesiastes comes along and gives us particular wisdom in light of the fall. And Solomon says he's a wisdom writer. It also says, you find here, that, that he's the writer of Proverbs. You know, look at you at verse 9 again. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And, and he arranged many Proverbs. Proverbs in this book, clearly, but it, I would say it includes others as well. And when you, you read them, you, you find Solomon's whole goal is to turn your eyes toward one source. What does he repeat over and over? What does Solomon, what does Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, repeat over and over and over? It's a wisdom book, and what is the beginning of wisdom? The beginning of wisdom is the... Fear of the, of the Lord. Isn't that what Solomon has been doing in Ecclesiastes? Calling us to abandon our, abandon our search, looking everywhere. He tells us that, that we won't find what we're looking for if we keep our gaze horizontally, but if we'll look up, we'll, we'll find the answer. That, that's what it means to fear, the, to fear the Lord. I know He's God and, 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 and I'm not. To realize that He has the answers, I, you, you look to Him, you revere Him. That's the first step to gaining knowledge, the first step to, to, to gaining wisdom, to look in the right direction. And Solomon has been saying, don't look anywhere here. You won't find it here. You look up. But it takes skill to draw out wisdom's path. So, so he notes his activities. His aim is this wisdom literature, and then he notes his activities. Look, if you would, at verse 9 again. In addition to being a... A wise man, the preacher, also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and he searched out and he arranged many Proverbs. Solomon describes here deliberate activities that he employs to 
to provide this knowledge to us. He describes three actions. He pondered, he searches out, and, and he arranges. Three distinct words. To ponder is, is a word mean to, means to weigh. It's a rare word, and it points to careful evaluation. It gathers data and then weighs everything carefully. Solomon doesn't just shoot from the hip here or, or just, just spew whatever comes into his mouth. That's, Proverbs says that's what a fool does. A wise man ponders, he, he considers, he, he weighs things out, and, and surely you know that Solomon has done that throughout the book, hasn't he? I mean, in chapter 2, he rehearsed every step in his pursuit of, of meaning and work and wisdom. He, he traced the boundaries of the, the ten most frustrating areas of, of life, and, and as you're listening to Solomon talk about human injustice and death and oppression and abuse and misuse of work and loneliness and popularity and our relationship with God and corrupt government and money. As you're listening to him, you're thinking, this guy's been hiding under my bed. He, he knows exactly what I'm thinking and, and what I am, I'm feeling. Solomon has weighed all of those things out himself. Solomon's gathered the information from a sound source, and he evaluated it with honesty, not what... He desired it to be, or we desired it to be. And then he carefully balanced it all, finally distilling it into general principles. And we are very thankful that he did. That's what the first word means, his activities. Second word, he says that he not only did he ponder, but he searched out. He, it means thoroughness. It means diligence to search out something. It's not just cast your eyes and, oh, it's not there. It takes time an effort to see wisdom's smooth path amongst the craggy rocks of life. There are no undercooked meals on wisdom's table. <laughs> Only a patient chef can operate wisdom's kitchen. And that's why we typically think of, of wise people being somebody who's lived for a while. It's because wisdom comes from the, the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of it. But you go beyond the beginning. You can be younger and possess wisdom. You can be older and lack it. But, but it doesn't come in a microwave version. Wisdom comes from, from practice. From looking to the right source and then putting it into action, whatever the Lord says, and then doing that over and over, and you develop discernment. And discernment is wisdom's instinct. And Solomon says he does that. And the third word that he uses here means... To use skill in arranging it all. I mean, Ecclesiastes is a masterpiece, a literary masterpiece. It really is. Solomon says he organized the pieces. It wasn't a haphazard, a chaotic writing. This is not some cathartic event where Solomon is just, is just rambling about, about his frustrations. He presents God's information with skill. And it's orderly, he says. You wouldn't call a guy who just gets up here and starts, uh, starts shouting disjointed thoughts a preacher, or, or you shouldn't. A faithful preacher goes to one source. He, he carefully considers what it says. He, he weighs it out and, and then orders the information uh, for the purpose to present it. And that takes a lot of labor. The, the goal is clarity. Clarity of, of the single source. You also wouldn't call a, a good sermon... 
if someone that just got up here and, and stood before you and gave you a data dump of information. Information is necessary, it's vital, but that's not the end task. The process is to make it clear, is to arrange it in such a way that it can be understood so you can, so you can get it and to put it into practice. And Solomon says that he's done that in this book. And then he tells us exactly how we're supposed to interpret it. Look at verse 10. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Now, you can teach a homiletics class from verses 9 and and 10, but we're not in homiletics class. We're trying to figure out what was Solomon's purpose. Does he know where he's going? Has he known where he's going from the beginning? Yeah, he does, and he tells us right here. Here's how... You interpret Ecclesiastes. Contrary to what some commentators think, the uh, interpretation of Ecclesiastes is not some pessimistic, fatalistic, or life is horrible and has no meaning kind of book. I mean, the message is not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. We know that because of the several places that I've pointed out. Here is where God points for joy, and, and here's where the gold's buried. But if, even if we didn't have any of that right here, this verse tells you. This is how you're supposed to interpret Ecclesiastes. Solomon says he was deliberate and careful in composing, investigating, and arranging the Proverbs and the lessons in this book. And what he wrote was pleasant words. They were words of grace, he says. Now think about that. How can you have a book about the fall and its effects and it be pleasant and about grace if there's a negative interpretation or no point to an interpretation? Well, you can't. I mean, this is not Solomon's backslidden ramblings. Walt Kaiser said Solomon wrote in uprightness. That is perfect sincerity without any pretense. And Solomon will not have pretense, will he? We felt that. Solomon has surely held us under the water many times. He'll not allow a Pollyanna view of life. He'll not fail to tell us the truth. And even now, he'll not fail to give us the ultimate answer to this life. That's coming. But he says the final message is sweet. It's delightful. It's truthful. And he does his best to guide us rightly. You should listen to it. Because it's wisdom literature. It's written uh, written by a wise preacher with a specific aim and a design. The second reason you should listen to the message of this book is is because it was written with a pastoral method. Get to verse 11. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections, better than scholars, masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. After telling us about his role and the labor he performed in writing, Solomon now tells us why he he wrote. Here's the purpose that he did everything that he did in this book. He tells us what Ecclesiastes is supposed to do in our lives. It's his method. And he says the words of of a wise man or wisdom literature has has a twofold goal. Ecclesiastes has a twofold goal, and, and that's to aggravate... An anchor. It's to stir up and it's to secure. It's to provoke and it's to protect. They're to goad us to gain wisdom and, and they're to bring security. 
And both of those images are taken from, from pastoral life or a shepherd's trade. Goads were, were wooden rods with iron points. I mean, they're, I don't know if you've ever seen the people walking along the side of the road or the interstate and they've got a stick with a nail on it and they're picking up trash. Well, a goad didn't have that long of a, you know, of a, of a prod on the end of it, but it had a sharp point. And its purpose was, to, was to, to prod the oxen to action or to increase its speed or to move a, move a sheep along. Nails were used by shepherds to fasten their tents. The Solomon says its purpose, the goad, will, are, is to spur the will and nails stick in the memory. Proverbs stick with us, don't they? I mean, they, they warn us, they wake us. They move us to action, but they also stick in our, in our memory. Two are better than one. It's pretty memorable, isn't it? There's a time for everything. It's pretty memorable. You can probably think of several other Proverbs. They nail something down. It's there. First, Solomon says his words are designed to provoke us, to aggravate us, to, to wake us up, to to bring the sluggish out of, their, out of their slumber, somebody who's slow on the uptake, move you to action, Michael Eaton said. Haven't you felt the, the pinch of, of truth in several places in Ecclesiastes? The sharp stick of injustice? The painful point of wearying work, you work and you work and you never get ahead and you think, is this all there is? Well, that's to keep you from falling asleep on the railroad track so you don't wake up with a train on top of you death. And when Ecclesiastes draws us under, down under the weight, we, we feel the futility of life without God. It, it stings. And that's to provoke us to wake up, to look up, to change course. And when it forces us to look at real injustice and genuine oppression in the face, it's to prod us to, to look to the only righteous judge in the only just place, which is with God in heaven. When we're taken on the poetic journey through the crumbling of this great estate that leads us to the grave like we were last time in Ecclesiastes, it's to force us to, to remember our Creator in, in our days while we can. And these are meant to prod us into doing something. Now, I've said this before, but here's a, something that should stick like a well-driven nail. Appreciation for the truth is not application of the truth. You can appreciate God or the Bible and never put any of it into action. You can know about God's Word and never apply any of God's Word. And you will live a miserable life and wonder why. Or worse, go to hell from a church view. How many times I heard a person say, well, I, I went to church all my life. I don't, know how this, I don't know how this happened. It happened because you were there physically, but that was it. You paid more attention to your thoughts or, or, or your own head or in your own head or maybe your phone than God's Word being laid out before you. And His Word is there to, to, to provoke you, to aggravate you, to stir you up, to, to wake you up. Don't think that you know God because you've heard about Him or called on His name at some point. To know Him means to walk with Him, to love Him and His words and to follow Him. And, and Solomon says that, that Ecclesiastes is to provoke you toward that. That's not all, though. 
Solomon says wisdom's words are also meant to be nails that fasten you down. They anchor you. They secure you. Verse 11, again, these words of wise men are like goads, and the masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. You ever driven a 16-penny nail into a, a white oak board or a block, and you get it almost down to the, to the end, and, and the nail starts to bend because the wood is so, so uh, dense? You take a hammer and you try to get it out. It's really hard to do that. Solomon says that wisdom's words, the words of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is for that purpose. It means the Bible's wisdom has definite points and they, they give us an anchor. They provide stability and perspective on life. You've felt the sting in Ecclesiastes, but haven't you also felt the stability, the comfort, the passages, like Ecclesiastes 3? talks about God's sovereignty. There's a time for everything and everything is in, in His control. Haven't you felt the, the peace and stability that His hands are, are strong enough to straighten what you can never straighten and one day that He will? Isn't that comforting? And that all oppressors will stand before a perfect judge and face judgment? Isn't it comforting to, to hear that the, the search in your heart is planned and it's to drive you to God? It's part of the fall, it's part of the curse that, that you search for something beyond yourself and, and if you're foolish enough to chase whatever it is, nothing will ever fill it, but that's purposeful in order to point you that there's nothing like God, there's no one like Him, and He'll fulfill your greatest longing. That you're not just crazy, always looking for something better, but never finding it. That you just need to find the one who is better. Stabilize. Solomon says, the masters of these messages are, you'll find stability. They're like well-driven nails in an oak board. Your life will not be shaky. It won't be unsteady. It will be like tent pegs in a solid ground. You need an anchor for your soul? You want your feet placed on a solid rock? Not the shifting sands of the world or your feelings or your emotions? Then turn to Jesus Christ and His Word. It can withstand any storm, any earthquake, no matter how great. And it can provide this prodding and security because God's the, God's the author. The third reason that He gives here that you should listen to the entire message of this book is because it has an inspired source. I mean, number three ought to be enough. <laughs> Look if you would at the end of verse 11. Like well-driven nails, they are given by one shepherd. By one shepherd. And then in verse 12, he gives us a warning. You should listen because it has an inspired source, and then there's a warning about looking to any other source. The source of all that Solomon wrote was given by the shepherd, meaning God himself. Some try to explain this away, saying the shepherd here doesn't refer to God, it refers to a king, because God's not often called a shepherd in the Old Testament. That's true that there are plenty of other words used by God in the Old Testament. But I can think of a very significant place where God is called a shepherd in the Old Testament, can't you? Something that Solomon would have been very familiar with. The Lord is my 
shepherd. I can't want. You know who penned those words? His daddy penned those words. And once again, you find that Solomon learned his theology from his father's knee. And here it is. Solomon's clearly talking about the Lord here. Here, in verse 11, is one of those places where I said, if you just blow by this, you're going to miss something significant. First of all, you're going to miss that Solomon has known where he's been going the whole time. Secondly, you're going to miss that Solomon has been very purposeful in the way that he's made you feel to bring you to this conclusion. But you're also going to miss the doctrine of inspiration right here in the Old Testament. Right here it is. There is one source. All of Solomon's activities are acknowledged here. And yet the final product is from one source, the shepherd. Do you see that? The preacher is aware of his own activity. In, in verse 9, in addition, being a wise man, the preacher taught the people knowledge. He's talking about his book here. He's aware of his own activity. He's not falling into some trance, having God dictate something to him or speaking some gibberish and then telling everybody this is what God said, like the fake charismatics do. Solomon says he was active. He pondered, he searched out. He says he gave this book its form, he arranged it, and he was the author. Meaning the, the content of work came from him. And, and now he says the finished product is the Word of God. It's the Word of man, and it's the Word of God. It's the doctrine of inspiration. Isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul says? All Scripture is inspired by God, and yet Paul's the one that wrote the words. Look at what Peter says. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. There's man, and yet it's not from man. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible was written by uh, over 2,000 years by 40 different authors from every walk of life. Uh, shepherds like, like Solomon's father, a king like, like him, physicians like Luke, fishermen, former tax collectors, prophets, priests, and others. 40 different people over 2,000 years, and yet it never contradicts itself one time. And there's one consistent theme through the whole thing. The rescue of sinners by God through Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Tim Chaffee said, From Genesis to Revelation, we see man's repeated rebellion against his holy creator. God made a perfect world, but mankind has continually rejected his authority and sought to decide truth for himself. And nevertheless, God promised to extend his love, grace, and mercy to unworthy people who deserve to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That's impossible without a divine author. And that's also why Satan and unbelievers always attack the inspiration and the clarity or perspicuity of Scripture. I heard several months ago, I don't remember exactly when, but it was in the last several months, one conservative political commentator said, whatever you hear the liberals accusing you of, that's exactly what they're doing themselves. It's true. It's a good principle to follow whenever you listen to the arguments that people give against Christ 
and against the gospel and against the Bible. Whatever area Satan attacks the hardest, it's one of the most important areas. You can rest assured of that. The Bible, the family, marriage, roles, sexuality, authority, salvation by grace alone. Wherever there's the greatest amount of force put by the unbelieving world, that's the places that you really need to pay attention to. And there's no other place to look that'll give you the, the answer. He talks about the source being the one shepherd, and then he gives a warning in verse 12. If you would, verse 12. He says, Beyond this, my son, be warned. Can you hear wisdom literature there, Proverbs? My son, listen to the words of your father. Forsake not the, the, the words of, of your mother. Beyond this, my son, be warned, says the wisdom writer. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the, to the body. Solomon starts by telling us the source of, of all of his writing is the shepherd, and then he issues a warning about turning elsewhere. Solomon is not arguing against, against study. He's not arguing against reading theology books or, or, or otherwise. As you may hear some people argue that you need to be intellectually ignorant in order for, for God to use you. It's just the opposite. You'll just be intellectually ignorant. Solomon is saying, beyond this, he says, in conclusion, or, but beyond what I just told you, be warned. It literally means take warning or admonish yourself so you're not tempted to do what I'm getting ready to say to you. God says it's your responsibility to eat truth and not error. Now, he's given you gracious help. He's given you the church, faithful pastors, wise brothers and sisters, godly parents, other people that are coming in your life to warn you. But you're the one. You are the one that bites the bitter weeds and chews the poisonous roots. You're the one that swallows. Nobody force feeds that to you. And you're the one that's responsible and accountable before God for the error that you imbibe. This is a warning. It's the same warning that's echoed by many other writings. After a lot of truth, there's typically a warning that, that's given. Look at how Romans 16 ends. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Can you hear, beyond this, my son, be warned? Look at how John ends 1 John. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, my son, and one that's probably very familiar to you, Revelation twenty-two eighteen. You know this one well, right? I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. It's at the end. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. It's a warning after truth. That's what Solomon's doing here. Solomon says, if you look at other places for wisdom... In the end, all of them combined will lead you astray. And your search will, will simply make you weary. In the end, there's one source, and that's God and His Word. You'll search and you'll search and you'll find no ultimate answers. 
C.S. Lewis said, a child asks questions out of curiosity because they want the answers. But old men do so to avoid the answers. Why is the sky blue, Daddy? Why does the worm come out on the driveway after it rains? Why does God love us? I mean, those are genuine questions. Solomon is not rebuking that kind of general inquiry. What he's warning against is the common hardening of faith that happens with age. You ask question after question, or you you pretend some kind of inquiry, and all you're doing is you're trying to knock away the prods and you're trying to knock away the nails. You're trying to excuse away the accountability, the light that's shining on your on your soul. You're blame shifting. You're, you're avoiding. And as we grow older, we think we're too wise for God's answers. So we spend time trying to explain them away with more questions, or in this case, more study. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consider, today is the day of salvation. You know, I'm going to consider that for, for a while. Um, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. You know, I'm going to think on that. You know, I actually have a question about what the Greek says in that verse. You see how it works? God puts his finger on you, and you run. You squirm away with another, with another question. And Solomon says that that's wearying, because you're never going to find what you're looking for, because you're, you're looking in the wrong place. Verse 12 again. Beyond this, my son, be warned after the warning... The writing of many books is endless. Sir, questions. Excessive devotion to books is, is wearying to the body. He says it's bad to look elsewhere because of the spiritual effect, but there's also a physical effect. The spiritual effect is they're all suspect sources. There are plenty of them. Solomon says the writing of many books, it's endless. I saw a statistic that said over a million new books will be published in the United States this year. Those are the ones that are known about, a million new books in one year. There's no shortage of error out there. I uh, searched Amazon, and I just typed in in the little search bar up top, marriage books. And if you do that... There are 90,000 marriage books that come up that you can buy on Amazon. How many of them do you think will fix your marriage? (laughs) 20,000 books on the meaning of life. Type in meaning of life. 20,000 books on Amazon. 5,000 books with the title, Is There a God? 5,000. Where do you think any of those books will lead you? Well, if they're not rooted in the Bible, they're going to lead you to destruction. And Solomon says the wonderful thing is there's also no shortage of truth from God either. The Bible is indestructible, and it's available to anyone who will look to it. And while you're warned against turning to any other book beyond the Bible, Solomon also says... It'll have a bad physical effect if you do. It'll bring weariness to your body from from the toil of much study, the... The word flesh here is usually refers to physical weakness or frailty. If you turn to other sources, then you'll simply run and run and run and chase your tail and never catch your tail. What do you think about your dog whenever you watch your dog just do that in the middle of the living room floor? Well, I think I want to kill it after a period of time, but I also pity it. Just look at that stupid dog chasing his tail. Let's just you think about people that, that just ask question after question, the erudite scholars that think that they're so smart and they're just wearying themselves, wearying themselves. 
Other books are written by men just like you. There's only one book written by God. And that's as far as their wisdom goes. Man's wisdom. Can you imagine the disappointment of dedicating your whole life to a topic, researching and and writing on it, only to die and find out that you've wasted your entire life? Many people do just that. Darwin studied his entire life writing to deny a creator, only to deny and to meet that creator for the first time. But you don't have to do that. Because God loves you so much that he had Solomon warn you against it and write a book. To invite you, to, to, he loves you so much that he invites you to look into his word for the answers. He carefully crafts it, he puts it together where parts of his word stick you and prod you and other parts secure you and, and, and some parts convict you and other parts are like balm to, to, to your soul. There are parts that that scare you, and rightfully so. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And then the other parts where the love of Christ and His mercy for sinners is so overwhelming, it leaves you in tears. Why would God do something like that? And it's all in one book. Solomon's final call. Do you remember his final call in verse 6? The final call of his sermon is to remember Him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Talking about death. Remember your Creator. Remember Him before death comes. Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your heart. That's what Solomon's saying. And our hope is not in wisdom literature or Proverbs or even in a book. Our hope is in the one who gave us the book, the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you so much that He came into our mess, a mess outside of the garden, and He made a way to wash away all of your sins. And He says He'll do that if, if you come to Him. But if you look elsewhere, you try it yourself, you'll die in your sins, and you'll not meet Him as Savior, you'll meet Him as judge, rightful judge of all the earth. You ever heard someone say the Bible is confusing, it's so hard to understand? That's why I don't read it. Look at verse 13. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, whether everything which is hidden, whether it is good or, or evil. There's a summary of the whole Bible. Fear God, keep His commandments because you'll stand before Him one day, and on that day you'll be judged, and you'll be either blessed or cursed. Is that hard to understand? That's not hard to understand at all. It's an intellectual argument that you can't understand the Bible. You don't have an intellectual problem. You have a sin problem. It's not hard to understand. It's a simple message. And whenever you read that message, and you realize that, that when you stand in that place before that judgment, that you have no hope, that opens you up for the gospel. That the only qualification for the gospel that you have, the only qualification for the gospel that you have is that you're a sinner. Grace only comes to sinners. Saviors only save sinners. That's your only qualification. And guess what? Every person in here is qualified. And it's offered to every person in here. What you have to decide is, will you heed the message? That's another question altogether, isn't it? 
Because God can offer his gift and lay it out clearly and articulately and do all of these things. But unless you repent, unless you believe, then it just stays at arm's length. Faith, trust, believing what God said is what connects you to what God has done. And you can appreciate all of that and never apply all of that. You can believe in Jesus and who He is and and what it said about Him and never come to Jesus and never get those benefits. Solomon's encouragement and my encouragement, God's encouragement to you today is don't just know about Jesus. Know Jesus. Bow the knee to Him. Because as we're going to see in Philippians, the same one who descended to lay hold of the treasure and the muck in the bottom is the same one who's going to ascend and going to be exalted in heaven, Lord of all. You'll acknowledge that one day. I hope you acknowledge it today as Savior. Let's pray. Father, what clarity, what amazing truths are in your book. And right now it's not a time to be amazed by the structure. It's to consider what we'll do with the message that's been laid before us. What will we do with Jesus Christ? What will we do with Him? And Father, I pray that as people here consider that, that they would would say, I want what He has to offer. I want salvation. Or maybe they would say, I've received salvation, but I have let my life get in a mess and I need to return. I need to be washed clean from all defilement. And so your word says confess your sins and you will be faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for that. Father, thank you for this book. May it be like well-driven nails in our hearts. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, you are able to fellowship as long as you want to in here, but I'm going to be up here if you have questions. We have a biblical counseling office that would be happy for you to make an appointment next week. Anybody, any of the pastors would love to talk to you about whatever might be on your your heart. And um, uh, don't forget when you leave, the offering plates are there for our church family uh, for for offering. And again, you can fellowship in here. You don't have to. You don't have to leave. And happy Fourth of July. Hope you have a great day. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you loved us, and we ask you to dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.